Drawing from the Well is a podcast series from the youth wellness movement. We are educators, researchers, healers, parents, and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development. Founded by Community Responsive Education. My name is Shreem Hannigan Martinez, and similar to a lot of folks, I come to the work on trauma as a result of a lot of my own experiences as a young person. So I grew up on the San Diego-Tijuana border, which is highly militarized place. And the militarization of that place for me as a young biracial Latina who was a part of a mixed status family, had an immigrant mother, meant that I was often privy to and witnessing a lot of the violence that is associated with living in a border town. And as a young person, I didn't know how to make sense of a lot of those experiences. And I only knew that I felt a profound sense of rage that manifested in a lot of what trauma folks would call maladaptive coping mechanisms. And I actively refute that language, but it was really all of these different sensibilities and ways of making sense of and dealing with a lot of the rage that I wasn't allowed to verbalize in my household. Right, so one of the major sayings, and I think a lot of Latino families, but definitely in my own, was this idea, que la ropa sucia se lava en casa. And you don't air your dirty laundry. But what that meant really was that you weren't allowed to talk about things like trauma, like shame, like the way that all of these experiences were making you feel. And so I found other ways to externalize what I wasn't allowed to give words to. And it wasn't until many, many years later when I ended up working at a high school in Oakland that I felt like I saw all of these survival strategies I had engaged in present in the lives of the young people that I was trying to work with, right? And I say that it was sort of etched in the desks, on their bodies, on the walls of our classroom, that it was sort of present all of the time. And it was really that moment when I saw these survival strategies mirrored back to me, that I became really interested in the phenomena of trauma and really understanding what it was that had happened to me, what it was that had happened to my family, to my community, to so many people that I loved, and that was also happening to the children that I was working with. So the first thing that happened, I think when I dove into the research on trauma, and this was, you know, a lot of our mentors and folks, they were barely starting to talk about trauma. It was really new. And I was super young still, and I was reading all the same things that they were reading. And the first thing that happened when I was reading it was this sort of groundbreaking, life-shattering epiphany, right? Like I remember reading it and just crying like, oh, this is why I do this. This is why I say this. This is why I navigate my relationships this way. This is why I'm sick all of the time. And it was just epiphany after epiphany as I was reading, seeing myself in this literature that actually isn't even written for folks of color and still feeling like it was the first time that I felt really seen and not judged even by myself. And so before I could even think about what it meant for this work to be applied in my own teaching, for this work to be applied with young people, it was really making sense of why does this matter for me? Why does this matter in my day-to-day -day practices? Why does this matter in terms of how I feel about myself, how I engage with other people that I love? And how do I start to practice these things before trying to teach them? How do I really learn them? How do I really learn to sit in my own suffering? How do I learn to listen to my body to make sense of my own feelings before I try to create what Francis Weller would call containers for them in my classroom. 
And I think a lot of folks hear about trauma and they hear the data on youth trauma and it is as alarming, actually more alarming than folks are hearing and there's this urgency to address it. And I resonate with that urgency. But I think in doing so, folks jump to worrying about other people's trauma before realizing, one, how their own trauma lives in their body, what responses they have developed to make sense of their own trauma. Menachem talks about it as trauma becomes a culture, and Stacey Haynes talks about it as we develop survival shapes. And then we start to believe that these survival shapes are the core of our identity. And so, so many of our identities, the identities that we have constructed are a response to the traumatic conditions and experiences we've had to navigate. And I think until we have started to make sense of those, that engaging in trauma work often means that we are not only complicit, but that we are often re-traumatizing the young people that we claim we want to serve. What's up, y'all? And welcome to Drawing from the Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. You just heard from my colleague and critical educator, Shereem Hannigan-Martinez, who discussed her implementation of trauma-informed pedagogy and her learnings around the significance of trusted and caring and loving relationships. Next, you'll hear from youth expert Tatiana, who talks about the role of spirituality in her healing and what it meant for her in dealing with her trauma. And finally, on our Mic Check 123 segment, you hear from educator, counselor, parent, and friend, Candace Rose Valenzuela, who puts in conversation the significance of trauma-informed pedagogy and healing-centered practices. There's been some controversy around it. And Candice helps us to make sense of and develop new ideas and theories around differentiating the two terms, but also just better understanding the role, the history, and the outcomes of trauma-informed pedagogy. I feel like H2O really opened me to like my spirituality. Like when we would meditate and you would do things like burn sage occasionally or when we would do Yazuya and like just small ceremonies. At first they were like nothing to me, but then like as I started like really feeling them or I remember one time we were meditating in Ishua and you were like, just see how far you can listen. And I was sitting by the window and I felt like I could hear the kids like down the block at Demon. And I was just thinking about like how close-minded I've been to like really trying to grasp like all the things around me or like how I've always just been directed into like one way of thinking. But like sitting there and like meditating and really just like hearing everything kind of like woke me up. From there on, like to this day, I have an altar with like my brother and crystals. And like every morning, I'll take like 10 minutes to sit there and like meditate with them and like process. And I feel like it's really calmed me and like not as tense. I don't want to just like explode on everybody. I feel like I'm more open to like trying to understand what somebody is going through. And like sitting there in discomfort or like if I'm having a hard day, how can I make my day better for myself? What do I need to confront in order for my day to be better? I feel like H2O really exposed me to that, especially when we would have conversations and I'd be like, no, I'm okay. But then like I'll end up talking about it. It's like a release that I've been like taught to just keep inside me and like through H2O I've kind of released it while also like helping other people release what they're going through. Being exposed to spirituality helped me on my sacred journey. Mic check, mic check. One, two, three with Kendis Jewel and Tiffany Marie. 
Today we're wrapping it up with the one and only Candace Rose Valenzuela. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. How you feeling, Candace? I am hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm doing okay. I feel it. Appreciate that honesty. We're so grateful to have you with us today. And we're hoping that you can tell us a little bit about yourself as we get started. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for having me. I'm appreciating being here and being invited. I was born and raised in Watts, California, which is in Southern California. Grew up there, working class, and a part of a small Blackskin community. But back then, I didn't know it was a community. I thought it was just me. Later on, I found out there's a whole crew of us <laughs> Blacksicans. And then in my adult life, I've you know worked as a teacher facilitator at different multiple intersections of healing, education, and justice. Won't list all of that resume stuff, but that's my career. And then as a human, I'm just like really connected to nature. And that's a lot of what guides my thinking, my presence, how I show up in the world. I feel like the plants and the earth are my biggest teachers. Uh, and besides that, I just try to have fun and try to enjoy life as I can within these confining structures that we live in. So, mm-hmm. and not define myself by that. So I'm silly. I like to play. I like to, I actually really enjoy hanging out with my six-year-old. I feel like they bring out the best parts of me, <laughs> the fun, the resilience, the quirkiness, and I think to sum it all up, I really just identify as like a quirky black girl. Nice. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we heard a little bit about nature and your child. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what do your days look like? Like what do you spend the majority of your time doing? Yeah, it's really flexible right now. I like it that way. It's not always easy, but it's how I function best. So my life is kind of split up into about three separate pieces. Most important is just being a parent and being a human, mm-hmm. <laughs> just trying to stay a human as much as I can, raise a person who also mm-hmm. can be a human, <laughs> if that makes sense. Raising a sensitive, brilliant, wise, energetic child and trying to keep up with them. And then the second, Third is my newest venture right now, which is interning and working to become a licensed therapist. So I see clients in the evenings and I work right now exclusively with queer and trans people. And it's very, very rewarding and a lot of growing edges, but it's awesome. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. I'm learning in the ways I want to learn. Requires me to show up as my best self as I can in those moments. And then the final third is my paid work, which is, I think, kind of what brings us here, where I work as a trauma-informed facilitator. But sometimes I joke that I'm kind of like the Olivia Pope in schools, if you watch Scandal, because often it's like a school's going through some kind of crisis or trauma Mm. that they are having a hard time figuring out, and they're like, Mm. somebody help us. Mm-hmm. Somehow my name comes up through the networks and then I come in and I'm like, you know, I'm not I can't individually handle it, you know, like Olivia Pope would. But often I'm like can be the catalyst mm-hmm. to people having different kinds of conversations, holding each other accountable in different ways mm-hmm. and bringing in different perspectives. A lot of times, you know, I believe that communities always have the resources that they need to get through something, but you're limited by your own scope and capacity at that moment. So sometimes it's helpful to have somebody say, hey, did you notice that thing over there? And just help people see it from different perspectives and open up to new possibilities. Possibilities that were there already, but they had a hard time seeing. So Mm -hmm. that's why sometimes it's hard to describe my work. I'll call it trauma-informed, cultural responsive, all these things. But it's Mm -hmm. really just getting into the nitty-gritty with people often. Mm-hmm. And it's also like using my therapist skills of like, what are you feeling? <laughs> How's that showing up for you? And often that's the thing that adults want to avoid. But it's usually, in my opinion, what's holding up the work the most mm-hmm. because you have all these great ideas, but you can't actualize them because you're avoiding the knowledge that's in your own body. Mm. Mm. 
It sounds like you have pretty extensive experience doing this, especially with the label of the Olivia Pope of common forms. <laughs> work. Hopefully you weren't in there doing all other things that Olivia Pope was uh, doing. I'm not going to talk about that. I know Candace wasn't doing that. I'm just saying. We, well, maybe I need to qualify that as an ethical Olivia Pope. Yeah, you got to put the asterisk <laughs> next ethical to it. Olivia Pope. Forget about that. Forget about the unethical Fixer. things she did. Uh, <laughs> right. She was doing a lot of stuff after hours too. It's extremely inappropriate. But, you know, I think she always comes to mine because my favorite snack is popcorn and wine mm. so we share a favorite snack <laughs> she made that dope i remember right? that i felt very uncool because i don't drink <laughs> wine and i definitely don't have it with popcorn at the end of the day with the versace or whatever else she had on very none of that but i do feel very resourced when i have on a really nice like coat or wrap or poncho I think it might just be more the aesthetics and then that aspect of being called in to like Mm -hmm. fix something that people feel is unfixable Mm -hmm. and I don't actually fix anything but I you know help them and it's like all hands on deck kind of and it's hard to like qualify that and everything's so like siloed buckets yeah in our society and i'm like i don't even think like that so i just kind of pick the current buzzword and say all right you know but i gotta pick a new one because scandal's getting old and people are starting to forget who olivia pope was (laughs) (laughs) i need a new one anyway (laughs) shonda rhymes got like four new shows out so you got a lot if you guys have recommendations Don't do Bridgerton. Was that what the show's called? Bridgerton? We won't talk about that. That would be that. uh, That's some antebellum (laughs) stuff right there. So, Candice, were there any pivotal moments that brought you to this particular work? Yeah. Too many to name, but the short answer is my own trauma. You know, Mm. being a deeply traumatized person and not having, you know, when I was growing up in the late 90s, There was no language about that. You know, when I was in school, it was just like you got good grades or you were a dropout. There wasn't a whole lot in between. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing for me was between those two options, I was doing everything that I possibly could to fit into that narrow line of, you know, the achiever. And I could do it because I have, you know, my brain can somewhat grasp onto, you know, the linear thinking that, people call education, but it had a big cost on my body. And I could only like repress that for so long. And I think if we had the structures in place right now, maybe I would have been identified for more support. But back then I was really overlooked because it was like, basically, you know, I went to Lock High, which doesn't even exist anymore. It's a Mm -hmm. charter now, you know, that whole journey there but I went to Lock High and at that time it was ranked as the like third most dangerous school in all mm-hmm. of California right so it's like growing up in a place that's like renowned for that kind of stuff and there wasn't a whole lot of education going on in high school and so I got good grades because I wasn't fighting in class and cussing out teachers mm-hmm. so it was like literally enough to just be quiet mm. And like slip through the cracks and then like know how to read every now and then. That was like enough to for people to say, oh, great, you know, that's excellence. And so those experiences motivated me to want to work in community and be a part of creating something different. And that brought me back to the classroom. And first off, I always knew that I wanted a different experience from my young people. And there's a lot of visibility to young people who resist in ways that are visible, right, and loud. And I think that's important. But having my particular experience, I had a commitment to also not ignore the quiet kids (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not just bypass people because they could, you know, the way I understand it through a trauma lens is like, what's your trauma response? So the people who fight and flee... (laughs) We understand that we might need to do something about them. There's either punitive responses or people who try to address what's ailing the child, right? Mm -hmm. But if your trauma response is fawn or freeze, you're going to be really good at fading into Mm -hmm. the background because you're frozen. (laughs) 
in our society that has so much weight on compliance, right? Compliance and respectability. If you're, you know, a black kid in the hood, you get the star of approval. Great. You know how to do the thing that we think is important for you to survive in society, which is be compliant. But in my case, it was like, be frozen, be deeply traumatized in this particular way. So that brought me to the classroom. That's like stage one. But stage two was like, once I got into the classroom, I quickly recognized that my freeze and fawn response wasn't going to help me no more. (laughs) That was not going to help me. In fact, I was going to get eight up. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to be able to have the impact that meant so much to me, I had the choice either to quit teaching or to investigate further. Quitting wasn't an option because it just meant so much to me. I think at that point in my trauma journey, I was really trying to find my worth as a human being. And we don't talk about that a lot. A lot of people that get into activism, teaching or whatever, you know, it's for the right reason. And also, right, I'm not Mm -hmm. discounting that it's invalid if we do it for ourselves. I think it's both and because everything's Mm -hmm. interconnected, but also many of us are trying to find our sense of worth in a world that's daily erasing that, right? And denigrating that. So I was on this personal journey of like, you know, why am I on this planet? (laughs) How can I make this suffering make sense? Mm -hmm. For me, that means one to have this impact, but then there was a monkey wrench there. Like being in the classroom really showed me my wounding because I couldn't hide anymore. Yeah, I couldn't hide from those kids. Come on. Right? And so that, what I would say, started my lifelong trauma research. I don't claim or aim to ever get a PhD. It's just, you know, I respect y'all's journey. (laughs) And in my body, like, I can't do it. Like, I Mm -hmm. have ongoing PTSD that goes in and out of remission, like a lot of us do. And for Mm -hmm. me, those certain kind of academic spaces just really mess with me. But I feel like... If we qualify people's work for what they actually do, <laughs> I give myself an honorary doctorate in trauma research mm. through my own self-work uh, that started when I was like, you know, first just trying to survive my own freaking mm-hmm. childhood. And then really starting in a serious way when I was in the classroom, I'd say I was around, I think I was like 24, like so young, you know, but I was in that bind. I was actually the first time that I actually truly felt suicidal because it was so difficult to hold. And so in making that choice to choose life, it was like, that also means I got to do this work. Wow. That was like the internal component. And then I didn't start working in this sort of training capacity that you see now until I had already been teaching for like eight years or something. And I had been engaged in that personal process for that long (laughs) before I then went back to school for my first master's in psychology. I knew that I had the embodiment of the work at that point. Like I was already clear. I wanted language to talk about it with other people and I wanted space to explore that. So in that first master's, it was a non-clinical degree. And I spent just that whole two years reading literature, comparing it to my own experiences, building my own lexicon to talk about it in a way that could reach beyond just like myself and the young people that I served. And that's when I really started training. And it happened really organically. I'm not somebody who ever went on Instagram. Like I'm not that kind of, I was getting called to do the work. People are like, oh, you know that too. Or people would observe my classroom. By the time I was end of my teaching, I was getting observed a lot. Again, we didn't even have the language even then for trauma-informed. I was like at the early part of it. I was just doing that self-work and that language was like not widely. There's a lot of trauma literature in the psychology realm, but in education, we weren't talking about it the way we are now. Mm -hmm. So I was like right at that cusp. And then people would come to my classroom and say like kind of low-key rude stuff. Like, what are you doing to engage the children? Like these like East Oakland children, are you drugging them? Which is kind of disrespectful when you think about it. People would regularly make those kind of comments like, Mm -hmm. Very disrespectful. Yeah, let's talk about your mm-hmm. like lens of the children. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was their disrespectful way of saying how remarkable it was. And for me, the key to that was actually me using trauma-informed practices before we had that language, mm-hmm. if that makes 
sense, right? And that was my methodology Mm -hmm. for how I was doing culturally responsive was through the trauma lens. We was doing mindfulness. We were doing all of that before it became a big, you know, industry. And then I went to school and then started allowing myself to have the confidence to actually teach other people. And then from that, I just kept getting called over and over to do the work. So then that's been about six years of me in this like ethical Olivia Popish <laughs> um, <laughs> capacity. But I really waited until I felt like I had that inner confidence. I learned a lot from, you know, jumping into a classroom at, mm-hmm. you know, 23 with no skills. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> So I wait until I feel like I have the embodiment of something before I start teaching and training others. Hmm. What I love about what you're sharing with us is we're getting a real-time story of how you went from savior to Mm. Mm self-recovery. And so many of us go into the classroom as saviors because of our own trauma and unanswered, unresolved traumas. But what I love about how you're sharing your story, and I do believe that many of us experience this as well, is that we go into this self-recovery process and you become an advocate versus a savior through that. Yeah, it was really, Ken, is so powerful to hear that history and the way that you're framing your journey. And you mentioned something about the sort of honorary doctorate that you give yourself (laughs) based on the work that you've done. And for me, I'm always like, as we're imagining something outside of this, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about sort of freeze responses, Mm -hmm. freeze and fawning being those of us who get passed through. I have experience of that myself and being passed through, right? And that being seen as, you know, you get the gold star, gold stamp of approval Mm -hmm. versus the flee or flight response. Mm -hmm. And it's like reminding me, it's coming up on my mind and heart around the ways that the sort of medical and psychological industrial complex of the plantation Mm -hmm. defined or described different practices of those of us when our ancestors who were enslaved or under conditions Mm -hmm. of capture. So like the mental illness part, one of the first frames is draptomania, yeah. the craziness of wanting to run mm-hmm. away, flying. And then the other part is stolidity, which is a term I saw in a plantation management book. Mm. They said the African people, unlike other people, unlike indigenous to Turtle Island folks or others, were well suited for enslavement and in fact may not respond as effectively to overt punishment because we had a penchant for stolidity. If you look it up, I swear to God, if you look this up on Google, for folks who want to right now, you can (laughs) type in stolidity, S-T-A-L-I-D-I-T-Y, and you're going to see a cartoon image of a Black woman. Mm. It literally means that you are without emotion, without resolve, when you should be, Mm. when there should be a response. And so like juxtaposing that and like thinking about those who get moved through, I'm hearing you say that essentially... Those of us who make it into these spaces where we become educators, where we get the stamps of approval, the certifications, whether that's pre to PhD, masters, et cetera, we have a lot of stolidity that is read as important. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, for someone who's trying to be on my own healing journey, but also in response to trauma, not just healing, but engaging the trauma, can't skip steps, right? What comes up, I guess, for you in response to us educators who are trying to release, work through the stolidity that we have has become our coping mechanism and our culture, and then go into these other spaces of the work that you are helping us understand in such a deep way, profound way, the pedagogy part that comes. Mm-hmm. Before I answer, I just want to say, like, it's really hard to sit still right now. It was like Tiff asked us not to move around a lot, but my whole everything started rushing, like all the energy started coming mm-hmm. coming up when you were naming that question. I feel like my ancestors heard that. <laughs> and I feel like it's part of what, just like as a human and a spirit, that's my work, you know, it's like this unpacking. And I didn't have that term stolidity. So I thank you for that. Like, I feel like that is very much part of the generational wound that I'm healing in my line. And then what I offer in when I'm working with communities or clients. So when you ask that question, I think about the polyvagal ladder. Have y'all seen that? Mm-mm. 
So it's a newer piece of research around trauma that comes from, I think his name is Stephen Porges. And it's a theory, you know, like anything, it can be debunked. <laughs> but right now it's one of the newer theories around the nervous system. And he puts these responses on a ladder. So it's like fight, fight, freeze, and fun, right? Mm -hmm. but, it, yes, but, yes, but it's yeah. actually really, for me, very instructive around how to heal. Mm -hmm. This is some of the recent learning I've had around trauma. So at the top of the ladder is social and engaged, right? That's the, I'm going to mess it up. So if I get this wrong, please do your own Google search, people. <laughs> but I think it's the parasympathetic, right? Mm -hmm. You might say sort of where we're at right now, right? You're calm enough. It's not like pure calm, but your system is in a state of like feeling okay, feeling safe, feeling connected. And it's sort of like our optimal state, right? We can engage, we can think, we can love, we can laugh. It's a fluid state. It's not like you're just feeling good. Mm. It's a fluidity where you can engage some level of stress, but handle it and like move on, right? It's the day to day. If you're lucky enough to not live in a severely traumatized body, <laughs> That's mm -hmm. stuck in one of the other responses it's like mm -hmm. where we kind of want to be as humans. Right now, if there's a threat, is it OK that I give you this little explainer? Because I this is how I understand. Please. The question. Please okay. Do. Okay. Yeah. So if there's some threat, severe threat to like bodily community, psychological, emotional harm. Right. The first response in the healthy body, according to this theory, is actually fight or flight. It's actually the healthy one, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to assess, all right, what do I need to do here? If it's easily managed, we don't go there. We deal with it as a group. But if it's bigger than that, okay, what do we need to do? We need to run. We can't fight it off. It's a tiger or whatever. We need to run, right? So that's why our nervous systems are all interconnected. You get the homies, let's go. <laughs> get out. And I love all the jokes about Black people in horror movies because I feel like it's actually an indication of our collectivity, you know, and our connection <laughs> and our nervous system. What are you doing? Run. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Um, but if you assess that the threat is actually meetable, you fight and hopefully you successfully fight it off. So that's actually the first line of defense in a healthy body. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Let's say, you know, your homies are like elderly people and, you know, places where you don't have the capacity to fight off whatever the threat is, or maybe you're impacted, mm -hmm. right? You can't run and you also can't fight. And that threat is not going anywhere. We have a backup generator system, which is the freeze and the fawn. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Where you fawn is, I'm going to appease you. Mm -hmm. People pleasers. Yeah, I'm faking it. I'm wow. going to take care of you. I can't get away from this. So maybe if I take care of the threat, right, mm -hmm. and soothe the threat, they'll settle wow. down, right? You're connecting it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we'll be all right, right? And again, all of these responses are healthy in a short time span. Our bodies mm -hmm. are not built to just live in these. They're not meant to be there forever, but they're meant to take care of us when we need it, right? And so wow. you soothe the threat. Okay, maybe if we distract the tiger over here or whatever, right? That doesn't work. We got to all play dead, <laughs> right? But again, it's supposed to be short term. Hopefully the tiger or whatever it is goes away. Y'all collect as a community. And this is a lot of the knowledge we've lost from our indigeneity is then you recover together. There has to be a somatic and a physical response to let go of all that trauma energy where you weep and you cry and you wail and you release the things you had to hold on. So if you're getting to oh freeze and fawn, you had to hold on to your fight and freeze. Your body ate that and it can't eat that and hold that forever and be well. And so mm -hmm. that's why indigenous communities have these weeping and wailing ceremonies. You see that in so many places or like when the warriors came back from war, this is like all the twisted stuff we have in colonialism. You don't just bring people back from war. Y'all mm -hmm. out there living in trauma, fight or flight, killing people, watching these things. If you just bring that back to your community with no separation, you're bringing the sickness to your community, right? Mm -hmm. So all the indigenous people had ceremony to bring the warriors back. They were quarantined, sequestered. They weren't just brought back. You engage in this deep thing. We need to support you to heal and release that and reconnect yeah. to the energy wow. of Earth and that parasympathetic, and then we bring you back to community, mm -hmm. right? Wow. As you're tracking that, you're seeing how much we've lost when we don't have connection through the oppressive system. And so when we're talking about trauma in this context, 
we are talking about chronic, right, and generational experiences of not having been able to release that survival energy that was absorbed and then that becoming a culture. And this is like Resma Manikin. That's his specialty. Mm-hmm. He talks about how that becomes culture. So that's where we teach our kids. You know, we hit our kids. We teach our kids that silence is the way as discipline. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not discipline. You're literally taking your stolidity response <laughs> and saying, you got to do it too to live in mm-hmm. this box. And so right. going back to the original question, I feel like in terms of healing it, what I've experienced in my body, right? Number one, I was born in a family uh, very stolid, if that would be, I don't know if that's the correct like <laughs> verb form, <laughs> Black people and Indigenous people, right, who trained me culturally to walk in these ways. As a young person, you're experiencing those systems also firsthand. It's not just generational. I was in foster care. I'm going to save y'all all of it, but my childhood was deeply fractured. And so then I had to use those mechanisms at a really young mm. age. My mom died when I was five years old. I learned to not feel at five, mm. right? I was frozen and it was nothing I could ever get away from. Right. It was a state that my body learned to live in. And I praise it and I thank it because it kept me here. Perhaps mm-hmm. if I didn't have that response, yes. I wouldn't be here today. Right. Yes. And it is not a state of wellness, right? To be trapped in that for life. So on my healing journey, a huge part of that for me is actually reclaiming my fight and my flight. Because mm-hmm. that's what I had to skip. And that's what I had to eat all my life. And so Tiffany's seen this in action. <laughs> and sometimes I don't have the capacity to like break down the research and why I know this is the right thing to do, mm-hmm. even when it's making everybody really uncomfortable. But if I go somewhere and it doesn't feel good to my nervous system and I'm not being humanized in that space, I leave. Yes. And for me, it's a huge reclamation. It sounds simple, yes. but it's not. For Black people that have been raised in this validity and then had to reinforce it and live it year after year and day after day. Yeah. Yeah. It, you, sometimes, I, even when I work with my clients, sometimes we don't actually realize that we have the option to leave because that's the generational memory, right? Can just We couldn't just leave the plantation. You couldn't just leave, right? So you did what you could to further the next generation. So that's how I also kind of, for me, repay my ancestors. It's like, if there are places where I can actually leave and they didn't get to leave, I'm out. That's why I don't run my work the way other people do. I don't follow. Often I feel like in this work, there's like false urgency. We got to do it all right now. Like we got to strike while the iron is hot. Who's iron? What are you talking about? You know, like, I like, always want us to strike irons. You know, right. Like, what are we talking you know, about? What iron? Get to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm listening <laughs> to my up. body, right? <laughs> I'm going at the speed yeah. of my nervous yeah. system's ability to regulate. And that doesn't discount yeah. that sometimes structurally that's not possible, right? We human, yeah. I'm not immune from a system. Those times happen like the pandemic. I can't get away from it, right? Mm-hmm. But learning the attunement and the awareness, right, to understand when I can walk away, though, not as an automatic response, as a choice, and then utilizing it is very reparative to me, especially when it's culturally unacceptable. So mm-hmm. give you some examples. I'm in graduate classes right now. Again, this is my second master, so I can license because I did the non-clinical first. So now if I want to be a therapist, I got to do this other degree. So I'm doing that. And as soon as I'm in the graduate environment, immediately I feel the social pressure around respectability, being nice, you know, avoiding conflict. I'm like, oh, Lord, what are we going to do with these therapists that are afraid of conflict? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so I just break all those rules, not like spitefully, but just commit to being myself. So I'm in a classroom. This has happened multiple times. Teachers not hearing me. They're erasing my experience from the classroom. They're tokenizing Black people for the teaching of everyone else in the classroom. I'll give them one shot. I'll be like, I don't want to name that this is happening, yada, yada. 
if they're able to hear that, cool, we engage. But so many times I've been gaslit and I'm like, my nervous system is rushing. My ancestors are screaming. I get up and walk out. It makes people very uncomfortable, but that's their stuff. That ain't mine, right? Because it's like, Uh. I have to, it's my life. Like, that's how I feel sometimes. Like, it's life or death for me. That's how it feels in my body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not Mm -hmm. overusing my fond responses because I've used them so long and so much that when I over, and I fall back into that pit, it's unlivable for me. Mm -hmm. I won't list it for you, but it's deep layers of symptoms that I experience. That I think a lot of Black people, especially, you know, assigned female at birth people, probably normalize. I've Mm -hmm. seen that, you know. Mm -hmm. And the only way I've been able to unlock that energy and feel more alive and get out of that solidity is to actually learn from our more um, reckless cousins and just walk away, fight back, tell people to fuck off. And for people like me, it's really important, I think, to not get into educating people as well when you're setting a boundary, because people will be like, but why? And all this extra stuff. And then what happens is if I got to, I'm in a state of duress. I'm in a state of stress. My body is not okay. Right. And it's so plain to me when I'm in grad school or like just these like white spaces that, for example, you know, we all talk about white tears. When the white girls cry, everything stops to take care of them. When (laughs) I cry, educate me. Mm -hmm. Fuck Mm -hmm. you. That is so dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. That in my pain, right? And that's the other part of the solidity, just It's one is that like we can embody the flat affect, but often we don't. People project that onto us. I can be showing all the affect all day. You're refusing to see it. You're refusing to see the emotional responses that my body is showing because it would ask you to relate to me differently and stop exploiting me, right? So that's the other part. I feel like whoever wrote that, they be lying. We do show emotion. (laughs) You know, and you don't want to see it because it it would disrupt your exploitation. And so, you know, and so when I see that and I'm like, I'm crying, I'm upset. And you keep asking me questions, either I'm going to walk away. And if you don't let me walk away, you don't get this 500 years of ass whooping that I've been holding on to. Come on. In whatever way that I can. And I don't think you want to see that because I don't want to see that. It scares me. (laughs) Listen, I don't know if this is a podcast or a therapy session. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's. I am fully in it. No, you're teaching me that my triggers saved my life. Do you know how much shame? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you do. You do this work, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, how much shame that releases, Mm -hmm. and how much shame that could release from so many other black queer femi. Yeah. Female gender. I oh my god, all of these things. I'm like, wow, my triggers saved me. How I responded to things is yeah. why I'm still here. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be the way that I live my full life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're taking clients. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can handle that via email. So you raise a oh, lot of goodness. intense points, Candace, in that segment just now was its own episode. But um, part of what came up for me way earlier was this idea of schooled people. I'm not going to say educated, but schooled mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Kendrick and I have argued this for a while, is that those who we consider, and I'm not going to talk about white folks because there's right. extensive research on how wounded white people are. Maybe not enough, but we've read enough and there's been enough for me. I don't want to talk about that right there's, now. There's enough of everything with white. I think. There we go. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. like it's, we have enough of it. I feel like there's enough explaining away yeah. of white people's <laughs> issues. What was fascinating to me, which I don't think we engage enough in this capitalist society that uses schools, particularly for social reproduction. We don't talk about the harm of folk of color. A lot of what people talk about in doing this work is let's just infiltrate the schools with more Mm -hmm. folk color, more black people. And I don't think we're doing enough to engage. If you have been successful, 
according to this society standards, then you are some of the most harmed people. Mm. You've had to not protest. You've had to not, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. your words, respond to in the probably the most healthy ways. And the people that we in classrooms particularly see as the most disruptive are often not given the credit that they deserve as some of the most healthy young people. So it's these folks who have endured the most, who have been silent about it the longest, who are the most wounded, then are supposed to be the ones who go back into classrooms and help young people to access their healing and wellness. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that circles back to this idea of trauma-informed anything, but particularly Mm -hmm. pedagogy. And a lot of times how we see it used is for children. It's like, well, we're going to use this for children. Exactly. And I've been blessed enough to sit in some of your workshops and that's not how you engage it solely. It's more of a reflexive process. It's more fluid. Can you talk a little bit Mm. about what's the point of this Mm. and what happens? Like what is trauma-informed pedagogy? What's its purpose? And what do you envision happens when we actually engage it effectively? I just want to say like, I, I couldn't agree with you more and like how you outlined, you know, schooled people and framing them, I very much see it that way through a trauma lens that actually our young people who are resisting. When I'm working with teachers, I try to take time in every single session. You've probably seen this where I'm celebrating and uplifting youth resistance and I'm making it the adult's problem to deal Mm -hmm. with what comes up for them when youth Mm -hmm. resist them. Like, mm-hmm. what's going on with you? Not only is this appropriate to the oppression that they're facing, it's developmentally necessary. Yes. It is literally defined in the stages of human development. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? And it's over-defined in white psychology, but you know, the idea of individuation, of finding out who mm-hmm. you are through exploration, yes. right? And even mm-hmm. within a collectivist society that has an important place, but somehow our young people are supposed to, again, just skip that, come to class, sit down, and shut the hell up. Mm-hmm. And that's seen as success. That is an mm-hmm. adult trauma response. For me, in the most basic way, trauma-informed means living my life, doing my work, and engaging with the world and others in my work as traumatized people who are healing from legacies of colonial trauma. So that's not necessarily what you're going to see in the books, but that's what it means to me. And that's why I do the work that I do. Just asking me about my story highlighted, I think, all of the key features in terms of how I see it and why I think it's important. From that perspective, when I hold my own story, my own truth, there's no walking away from it. There's no getting around it. And I don't even think we can actually define or engage with healing without a deep recognition of trauma and its legacy in our lives, in our world, and in all of our institutions. For me, the trauma lens changes everything. So I'm on Facebook and I'm tagged in this post and uh, I check it out. I go click the link. It's this article that Candace has put out and I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 that makes sense. That makes- oh, snap. I come across this paragraph and it was kind of like the 90s where like <laughs> Ice Cube would put out a piece and then another rapper would come back. You better check then, yourself before you wreck yourself. Nah, I'm thinking like no Vaseline or <laughs> oh. so. I was like, wait a minute, what is going Ooh. on? And then I go back to the post in like 10 minutes and it's like, what, like 60 comments or something on there. And it's, you know, folks is going back and forth. I was like, did Candace just do what I thought she did? (laughs) Did she just pull in conversation with some of the best? And so I want you to talk about, I want you to talk about this piece that you put out that I don't think it's that bad, but why I was gasping Mm -hmm. is that I think what you did in terms of creating critical discourse, it just doesn't happen in our work. I think it folks doesn't. are like, they just agree. It does. Something comes out, that's the language we're Seriously. going to use. Seriously. So Candace comes in and brings Ooh. in a critique of a very popular framework, which is what scholarship should be. Arguably one of the most popular right now. <laughs> yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what was going on for you. Why you do that? Ooh, what's, what's up? Talk to us. 
my god i love the framing <laughs> tiffany thank you i feel very seen <laughs> right now <laughs> man so that article was some like two years in the making or something because when jen white first put out the piece i read it and i was honest to myself i really like it it wasn't really doing it for me i was like I don't know Jen Wright very well. I respect him because other people respect him. He's an elder. I must, you know, hold my peace. I was like, that's cool. There's room for all of us, right? But for me, I was like, what is happening here? This doesn't feel like he was adding a whole bunch. But when it blew up, that's when I became involved. Everywhere I would turn, you know, I'm in these spaces. You know, I'm not one of these well-known folks Like I said, I don't have those kind of degrees and things. And so I'm in the spaces, but I'm not necessarily, you know, there's a cult of personality, honestly, that I experience a lot in these spaces and I'm not part of that. So every time I would give a workshop, this article kept presencing more and more. Not your article, the Healing Center. No, the Healing Center Engagement. Thank you. Okay. And then I had my misgivings, but again, I was holding my peace. And it's so funny how like everything is full circle in this conversation because my approach to the article was very much the exact healing method that I'm talking about today. I'm noticing my body's response to this article. Mm -hmm. I don't personally resonate with it, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to just pop off. Like, let's have a dialogue. But as it's going on. Finally, I find myself in a very public talk that I won't, you know, name, but a very public, well-known teacher space. And I'm like, I think I was like a keynote or something. I was giving some talk. And my title for my talk was, I think it was like Decolonial Mental Health or something. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about a lot of this information, but tying in eco-psychology and earth-based healing, right? And tying it within the context of colonization. And right at the end, some very young teachers of color asked me in front of like 200 people or whatever, how do we push back on trauma-informed teaching in schools? Mm. I'm like, I'm confused. What, what? Why are we pushing back on it? I said, we're pushing back on it. I said, we don't. (laughs) We don't (laughs) push back on it. We haven't even done it yet. Mm. We ain't even done it, right? Mm -hmm. And I just saw the confusion in the room because people are loving this healing-centered stuff. It's resonating for them. And then they're loving what I provided, but it seemed like they didn't actually have a frame to integrate it, that the Mm. two discourses weren't engaging each other, right? Mm. And they Mm -hmm. couldn't internalize it. And them being young, right, and being the schooled people that you're talking about, Tiffany, Mm-hmm. who are deeply wounded themselves and probably early in that savior stage around why Uh-oh. they want to teach, right? Mm-hmm. And they're telling me that they want to push back on trauma-informed. I said, the hell you don't. And so I went in there and I gave a five-minute rebuttal verbally to healing-centered and why it was so that they nothing would be healing. It's like, <laughs> Sealy color purple. I'm like, nothing you... <laughs> With the finger. With the finger. If you don't sit with this trauma, (laughs) you know, and they're trying to integrate. And what was also really interesting to me was that there were a couple old heads in the room, like colleagues of Jen Wright. And I could see them sort of doing the like, I know y'all can't see my face in the podcast, but I'm making this face like, is this okay? Like, this is uncomfortable. Like, she's confronting this person. For that face. Let me provide it. Let me try to provide it. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't stolidity. That was, was not stolidity. stolidity. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I got off the call and I was just full of fire. You know, I was full mm. of fire. I didn't want to have the like 90s ether tone to it, but <laughs> it was there. I was on fire. I have to be honest about my own body. I was lit up. I was indignant. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I'm going to go ahead and write this. And for Mm -hmm. me, it was my own trauma healing process because, again, I was refusing to what I believe is something of a fawn response in these Mm -hmm. cults of personality that if an old head says something and a foundation grants it, we all have to agree. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what happened to criticality? 
-hmm. At least when I was coming up, I was taught that liberation came through dialectics, Mm -hmm. through the push and pull and that we learn more. I feel like there's so much decompensation, if you will, in the actual what we call movement, because we don't have enough of that push and pull. We scared to actually speak truth and say, I don't agree with it. You're scared to get called as like you're not woke or whatever. And then the inverse of that is then, oh, cancel culture. We're not going to talk to you no more. There's Mm -hmm. no learning in any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. You're just like erasing people from the dialogue or you're saying we all got to agree to be on this boat over here. That's a very clear duplication, in my opinion, of traumatized and oppressive dynamics. Now, what came up for me was my own shit like Who am I? (laughs) Who are you, Candace? You ain't nobody. You don't got a PhD. You don't got two books out. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. your name. Who gives a fuck what you got to say about this shit, you know? And everybody's on this healing-centered boat. And who are you? No one's even going to read it. This is my inner dialogue that's coming Mm -hmm. up around the discomfort when you try to break out of the fawn, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's been there for so long, you're going to have all these spirits or whatever you want to call them, voices inside of you. They're going to try to keep you there because that's what's kept them safe. You can't do that. What you mean? You can't do that. You can't buck against this elder. You can't, you know. And finally, I said, okay, I hear y'all. We scared. That's okay. And then you, I called them into a family embrace. That's how I deal with my, I call it my inner community, my inner circle. It's all of these, all of me's. And I'm like, we're going to be all right. <laughs> I hear that we're scared and that's okay. And that's normal. And this matters because it matters to me. Mm -hmm. And it matters because I matter. And Mm -hmm. there's a lexicon of knowledge in my body. And if nobody reads it, I don't care because I'm going to read it and I'm somebody. And that's my whole thing, you know. And if three people read it and they get something from it, great. But Mm -hmm. I did it for me. I didn't do it because of anything else for renowned or anything. It was just like, this matters to me. And my body is feeling the resonance of how unseen this particular shape right people that are very sensitive and aware to their legacies of trauma in their generations but in their lived life and their day-to-day mm-hmm. the opposite of the numbing is hypersensitive mm. right and I was numb for so long because I was hypersensitive and that was the only way I knew how to cope in the world as a hypersensitive person So when I take off those trauma responses and I take off all that fawning and freezing, what's left is a really hypersensitive person. And so I have to take care of that if I'm going to do this work. And as Mm. soon as I numb all that down, all of a sudden I don't have my knowledges anymore. I can't actually do the work that helps to heal myself and others. So that's a cost I can't pay, right, individually. And Mm -hmm. so that was where the article came from. And it was for me and wanting to have the experience of speaking back just in myself. In a lot of ways, it was like a letter to myself and the work that I'm doing and its validity and the frameworks that I sit in and then inviting other people if they also wanted to learn from that, if that makes sense. You know, my nutshell is, you know, the heart of Healing Centered is beautiful and at least in the way it was articulated in that article, I think it has shifted and grown through people's praxis, as all things should, right? But in that beginning article, I think it missed the mark in several important areas. Number one, the definition of trauma was extremely narrow and it was white-centered. So I was like, come on now, how are you going to talk about healing-centered and your stuff is white-centered? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was like very narrow definition of trauma. Old, too. We're not even using that no more. <laughs> And then I'm like, if we're talking about healing, we let's center BIPOC people. Let's center QT BIPOC people. We're the experts on trauma because we live it. Mm-hmm. So I need to see us in this article, right? Mm-hmm. First and foremost, it's all there if people want to read it. But part of the, I think the key framing of Healing Centered is positioning trauma informed as a deficit pedagogy. And that's fundamentally wrong. I can't even push back on that. I'm saying it's fundamentally wrong because of what we just broke down, Jewel, today. If your trauma responses are why you are here, that cannot be wrong. So the trauma in and of itself, in the most recent research that I've engaged and also learned from Black Indigenous writing and teaching, the trauma mechanism itself is a mechanism of healing. 
Yeah. It ain't no nothing deficit to it. The deficit is living in this fucked up structural society that doesn't let you fully embody your trauma responses, right? Or forces you to freeze into certain archetypes, right? Right. That's the harm. But trauma itself, to me, is actually quite beautiful when you get into it. There's many other things. So that was my key, you know, bone to pick was the framing of trauma was off. The centering of white voices in the definition of trauma. I'm like, why is Maria Yellowhorse not there who defined historical trauma? She should have been in that article. <laughs> Thirdly, when he posits like a an answer to trauma-informed, again, that also was white-centered. Like you're talking about positive psychology. I myself really don't like positive psychology. <laughs> I'm not a positive person. <laughs> I'm a huge disruptor of toxic positivity. Mm. I don't think positivity or negativity are helpful frames in our world actually at all. It's not positive or negative. It just is. Mm-hmm. And how do we restore the balance, right? And so I wanted to see black and brown voices uplifted, both in definition of trauma and in its responses. And then in my article, I wanted to much as I could to like name drop other sources that people could look to. People to learn about, you know, healing justice. People learn about black and brown indigenous voices who are doing the work and living the work. And so, you know, when I define trauma, I can't say that that's how the mainstream's talking about it. But I can say that for people of us, our people, this is our conversation. And I think it needs to be centered that way. And if I had my perfect worlds, there would be like an update to healing and centered that would mm. be rewritten and respoken to to fold in these pieces. And whether that happens or not is not my work, <laughs> but that would be my wish of all wishes. And I think that there's a few folks that have reached out to me that have shared that they're teaching it, my article alongside that article. And mm-hmm. I think that's a nice way to hold that discourse of like letting people just be exposed and mm-hmm. feel into their bodies and then come up with their own theories. So if you really want to get meta with it. <laughs> come on, get meta with it. Okay. When I'm reading <laughs> Healing Centered, I'm saying, okay, how much of this is an adult desire, right, to avoid? And the mental health stigma around having a mental illness or having some kind of, right, the fact that we're framing trauma as deficit is part of that mental health stigma package. And we just need to Mm -hmm. blow that shit up. How are you going to be healthy in an unwell society? Ain't none of us healthy, period. Right. right. It's ableist. That's what I'm, yeah. you, that's it, Kendra. That's the yeah. word I was looking for. That was my, amongst all the things when uh, I got down to it as I was writing the article, as I felt that it was very ableist yeah. to focus on healing. Not all of us can actually even access healing and healing towards what and defined by who. Right. And right. so mm. in this whole thing, we're not going to be, there's no healed, <laughs> in my opinion. It's moving towards collective responses to harm and justice to me that's just all there is but also if you're not decolonizing how you're defining healing that's a trap too because Mm. right now the way people are basically talking about healing well that in and of itself is a whole taxonomy right of ableism white supremacy healing historically has been defined as just getting closer to white people and mm. so, again, if that's not in the healing and centered article, what are we doing? <laughs> that was it for me. And, um, you know, Tiff, I feel really seen by you just sort of just a lot of things you pulled out around like schooled people and why we can't turn away from this dialogue. Whether or not you agree with all the things that I've said, we are nowhere near in our society in our structures or in our discourse to be ready to stop talking about trauma. Candace's P, social justice education needs trauma-informed care now more than ever. A response to the future of healing, shifting from trauma-informed care to healing-centered pedagogy by Dr. Sean Jenright. Last question. We spoke with some other folks in previous episodes. It's really about understanding schools as they exist now, not having the ability to actually do most of the things that we want to do, not having the infrastructure to support a trauma-informed pedagogy. What do you see as necessary in the future of these spaces to 
to really actually center education. What's necessary is, you know, is a total and complete revolution in everything that that requires. I mean, Nana, you can't do that. They're not going to be able to use the footage if you keep doing that. That's that's that the words dope. from young people saying what they want to hear. I'm ready for spiritual. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. yeah, that's. I mean, you know, and that is that is a lot. That is a lot of work. It is generations of work. Um, may not take as long, actually, if we, as we think it is. It would if we just doubled down and actually did it. You know, part of the reason why I think social change can take so long is because we always, you know footing around and just like, you know, so indifferent and ambivalent. We got to work through our own stuff. But, um, Liana, if I can't take out the headphones that I do, then they won't hear me. Yeah, that's why I'm keeping my headphones. No, they won't hear us at all because my computer does the sound doesn't work. Can you sit down, please? Thank you. Nope, sit all the way down. This interview might be over, you guys. We got it. We appreciate it. You know, that's a short answer. And I think everything else is like, how do we survive? Y'all <laughs> <laughs> heard it here. It, this is it's a wrap. Literally. We want to thank Candace right. for showing up today and showing out. We appreciate you. We appreciate your child coming in with yeah. the cameo. Yeah. Yeah. And we leave it. We leaving most of this audio in here because this is the future of education right here. <laughs> Candace said, when it's time to go, I go. Here we go. Yeah. Thank you, Candace. Right. Yes. Peace out. Today's episode brought me back to the 90s. I think where things are a little bit more real. I'm sorry for the younger people who listen and have no idea what I'm talking about, but you can thank us, folks from the 80s who informed the fashion and style and culture of the 90s. Y'all welcome, because all of, I shouldn't say all of, but a lot of what you wear in these days, a lot of what you think in these days was informed by us. No, but real talk, what I appreciate about today's episode is what it means to be a conversation with each other around how certain theories and practices resonate with us and then the parts of those that we don't agree with the parts of those that we challenge out loud i remember when baldwin and malcolm x and audrey lord and critical scholars would be in conversation with each other and it wasn't so taboo i think about gloria lassen billings saying you know what is crt doing in such a nice field like education i appreciate the sarcasm I appreciate the challenging because we need to be in critical conversation with each other around the implementation, the ideas of these texts, of these theories, of these practices, of these ideologies. And regardless of what you agree with or what you don't agree with, let's make sure that youth wellness is at the center. listening to this episode of Drawing from the Well, brought to you by the Youth Wellness Movement. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This podcast is co-produced by yours truly and John Reyes, with music by my boy Jansen V. Drawing from the Well is supported by Community Response of Education. Continue the conversation at youthwellness.com.